Welcome to Politics in Question, the podcast where we ask the big questions about our political institutions, why they're failing us, and how we might fix them. As I've argued repeatedly, I I really do think we are entering a new era of political reform. And as you all know, I, I think we need more than two political parties, and I think we need proportional representation to get us there. But there are also many types of proportional representation and many potential pathways to reform. And while it might seem like this is a new fad, it's actually quite a history of efforts to get proportional representation in the United States that goes quite a way back. I don't think a lot of people know that. And there are lots of interesting lessons to learn from that history and lots of mistakes not to repeat. So I'm delighted to welcome Jack Santucci, a political scientist at Drexel University, who has really done more than anybody in the world, I think, to explore and learn from this history. And he's written a really important new book distilling all this research called More Parties or No Parties, The Politics of Electoral Reform in America, which is just out from Oxford University Press. So welcome, Jack. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, Lee. All right. So let's get into the book. You're doing a lot in this book. And partially, it's a history of these reform efforts, but you're also really developing a theory of how electoral reform happens, and more importantly, how it's sustained or not. So let's dig into the history. There is something called the American Proportional Representation League, which got started in 1893. So take us all the way back. Tell us about why does this league form when it does and what does it do? How does it go about building this effort for reform? Well, it forms in 1893. That's where my story starts. And my best guess is that's that's because this the party system that emerges from the civil out of the civil war develops in the wake of the civil war starts falling apart and there are other good books one can read about how that happens uh but we've got we've got what looked like the beginnings of a multi-party system in the united states at that point uh we could talk about the people's party or the populace and uh, not long after the socialists come around and the early pr league messaging is kind of targeting those audiences. And you look at the early pro-reform propaganda, it's all kind of seats, votes, proportionality, tables of how many votes each party got and how many seats they got in the legislature in in various states, in cities, even in Congress. Uh, And that's kind of how they talk about PR for the first 20 years of advocacy. Um, you know, there are a couple of people floating around. John Commons, for example, is an academic who starts to suggest, hey, we can actually use this as an anti-corruption device in municipal government. But it's very much about more parties, not about no parties in the beginning. So there's a lot going on in U.S. politics as the 19th century becomes the 20th century. There's sort of this rise of this progressive good government movement. How does that interact with the quest for proportional representation? And how does it change what the advocates of proportional representation start to do? Well, they can't they can't win in Congress. So they're looking for other other ways to win what uh, a guy named Clarence G. Hogue will call in 1911 demonstration cases at the state and local level. 
Uh, and what's going on in local government at this time is all kinds of municipal reform. So I think in 1898, we see the emergence of a strong mayor system and, and, and some borough consolidation in New York City. And then in 1900 in Galveston, Texas, we get something entirely different. They're going to create a five-seat city council via numbered post elections, which are nonpartisan and basically run the city the, the way a corporate board of directors would run a, a business. And uh, a hurricane is the sort of event that allows them to bring that city charter in. So there's all sorts of experimentation with these municipal reform packages. And in 1909, a city called Grand Junction, Colorado, says, hey, let's let's basically use a rudimentary form of instant runoff or single winner rank choice voting with this thing that they've invented in Galveston, the, the, the commission plan of local government. Uh, and a couple of cities adopt that from 1909 up to 1912. But after 1912, the thing spreads like wildfire. And it's interesting. One, one person, the James W. Buckland himself, says in a journal article in Annals that, uh, you know, and this type of ballot practically serves as, uh, as a literacy test, right? So that, oh, does it confuse voters? Uh, oh, well, you know, who cares if a couple of people sort of can't figure this out? That's actually seen by some in this movement as a feature, not a bug. So from there, we get to combining STV with the council manager plan of local government. Right, tell us what S tell us what STV is for, for those who are not not up on all the hip acronyms. Multi-winner rank choice voting, the, the proportional rank choice voting, the form that, uh, you know, ostensibly if your district is big enough and a party gets 10 percent of votes, it's going to get 10 percent of seats in the legislature, that PRCV. Um, right. But this is a nonpartisan election. Right? This is a so, nonpartisan election. So so there's like a weird grafting here, right? There's a weird grafting going on. Hogue, the head of the PRL at that point, surveys what's happening in state and local government. He says, look, people love nonpartisan elections. People are using ranked ballots all over the place with this commission plan of government. Let's see if we can graft proportional representation onto this. And uh, he starts saying, well, you know, I think we should use STV. And there are other people who disagree. Yeah. Okay. So, so there's a fight. The STV nonpartisan people basically win, right? That's what happens. And then a bunch of cities start adopting this, right? That's, that's the story. That's the broad story. I mean, there's a pretty ugly fight. And Los Angeles is where it goes down. And the socialists are not happy with the nonpartisanship and they have all kinds of critiques of nonpartisan elections that would resonate with anybody who's sort of studied nonpartisan elections in the contemporary period. Uh, but they've also got a theory of party government, right? Is that, you know, a democracy involves coalitions of elites making deals and pushing stuff through a legislature. And some people sort of don't want to believe that or want to pretend it's not true or whatever. And there's an agreement to disagree about that. And the defeat of list party list PR in Los Angeles kind of leads the Socialist Party to shut up and just go along with the nonpartisan STV stuff. OK, so we get nonpartisan STV. It starts going through cities. How, how does it get adopted? Why are some of these cities turning to it? And what are the big cities that, that turn to it? Or what are the important cases here? 
Case number one is Ashtabula, Ohio, in 1915. Made famous by a Bob Dylan song. Uh, made may, may have been. I do. I don't. Do you know any words from that tune? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, so you're going to make me lonesome when you go. There you so. go. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the reformers felt lonesome. Uh, Ten yes. years. Well, fifteen years after this thing disappears from Ashtabula, but Ashtabula starts the wave. West Hartford comes after. Then we've got. Sacramento, California, Kalamazoo, Michigan. It looks like a couple of socialists get elected in each of those cities. The state courts say no more of this stuff. Uh, West Hartford, it doesn't last very long. The really big case in the early wave is Cleveland, Ohio. And um, the way that they're passing this reform package, small city council, nonpartisan elections at large, proportional rank choice voting is by raging against the machine. Uh, you've got you've got a sort of two party system here. I don't want to get too much into the theory of reform, but you've got to build your reform coalition out of the two party system. So what do you do? You find ways to split parties and you look at some of the where the messaging really gets developed. They sort of they screw a lot of things up in Cleveland and Cincinnati right down the road becomes the, the, the place where they really perfect how to win these things and then how to govern under these things. And they develop a sort of burn all parties type of messaging in Cincinnati. Uh, and there's no mention of proportional representation in, in some of that literature. It's all about get the parties out of politics. The, the party bosses are the problem. I mean, that fits in with kind of the rhetoric at the time, right? There's like a lot of anti-party rhetoric, this sort of like whole progressive era thing. We should just get rid of parties. We should just encourage people to make independent judgments, right? I mean, this is like the the zeitgeist of that period. Yeah. But the irony is the irony is that it's it's a certain type of underlying party competition that I argue leads to the adoption of an STV council manager charter rather than one with plurality at large elections. So they're telling the public we're, you know, the public hates parties, they're giving the public what it wants, and yet there's all kinds of partisan machination in the background. Right. So this is this is like this idea, this idea that you, you can't really get rid of parties. You can only move them off off stage. Yeah, I think you can probably dent them, change the course of American political development by trying to dent them. But that may be a topic for a different conversation. Well, I, I don't know. This is a good conversation. Did, did we dent the parties? Did we change the parties? I mean, this is only... So this is only happening at the at the municipal level. So it's not no, there's no state that's doing it, and it's not not anywhere in Congress, right? It's not anywhere in Congress. I mean, there are proposals in Congress to adopt some type of PR. I mean, just the other day, um, one of the guys from our shared republic and I discovered a bill for list PR as late as 1912 or 1913 in Congress, but there's no real traction in Congress. Part of me wonders what would have happened if Los Angeles had turned out differently, if the LA Times had not run a bunch of editorials saying this thing is a socialist plot, and instead we'd gone with a form of proportional representation that strengthens parties, whether they are third parties or major parties, you know, and sort of gone and, and gone down the road of multiple strong parties rather than going down the road of let's pretend we're getting parties out of politics. Who knows? A great topic for the uh, the future counterfactual episode of Politics in Question. So we we um, on that that's on Earth twelve, but back to Earth one. Earth one, 
the reformers go the municipal nonpartisan STV route, and you got a bunch of cities adopting it. Now, of the initial wave of adoptions, the only one that still has it is Cambridge, Massachusetts, right? So what happens? Why is this reform not sustainable? I think ultimately it's because there's this there's a lot going on there. One is that the entire reform project was about putting a putting multi-party institutions in front of a multi-party system. And as I as chapter one is called forcing reform onto a two-party system. Uh, and I think here's where mistakes get made that don't have to get made. Um, right. STV works in other places because it's not a nonpartisan system of STV because parties are you are limiting the number of candidates they nominate. They are engaged in strategies to even out the distribution of first choice votes among the members of a slate. So this is like Ireland, the Australian Senate. Australian Senate, I mean, Ireland is sort of a laissez-faire STV system, but with fairly strong parties, strong multi-party politics, and a whole bunch of what they call vote management. You know, you go to Australia and there, there's this thing called above the line voting. And 90% of voters aren't even really ranking choices. They're just taking a box above where you would rank choices. And stuff like that doesn't really develop here in the United States. Right. So we don't get a get a multi-party system with any of these cities because it's it's there's nothing that, that makes it easy for parties to actually organize. Yeah. And that's probably because, you know, <laughs> I think one of our colleagues would say that's because the councils themselves are too small. If you really want a multi-party system, you need a larger assembly. I think that's part of it. I think another part of it, though, is this unit rule that we use to allocate votes in the Electoral College. Um, Anyway, I don't want to go too far down a round. But yeah, you don't get multi-party politics out of this. And the other thing you don't get is any sort of clear-headed thinking about, gee, what would it take to save STV? It's interesting when there's a repeal attempt that doesn't succeed, it is often because there was some fleeting new party on the scene that could help defeat it or some really popular independent who could help defeat it. And, you know, the, the old PR heads listening to this are going to think of Ted Barry in Cincinnati, you know, local NAACP leader. He helps defeat one of these repeal initiatives. Uh, so I think that, you know, there's an affinity. There's an, there's an affinity between... PR, proportional representation in multi-party politics. And without the multi-party politics, I argue, you're less likely to have clear thinking about reform alternatives or clear thinking about how to rescue some of these reforms, maybe how to take a system of nonpartisan STV and work, make it work more like an Irish system of STV does. Cambridge, they figure it out. But you know, what do they look at? They look at 23 repeals. <laughs> before they figure it out in Cambridge. All right. So all of this is is history, but this history is obviously relevant for today because just as reformers in the early 20th century looked to municipal ranked ballot systems, uh, we we now see a number of, of municipalities again using ranked ballot systems. So San Francisco has had ranked choice voting for over 20 years now, Minneapolis, St. Paul, New York City most recently. So is this 
the same playbook as it was in the early 20th century. How do you see the echoes of this this current uh, interest in electoral reform as opposed to the the way that happened about a hundred years ago. I think there are far more similarities than differences. You've got a party system that people on both sides of the aisle are very upset about. There are all sorts of signs of dealignment all over the place. I would argue that the interest in electoral reform itself is an indicator of dealignment. And what do you mean by dealignment? Like, where, where do you see dealignment? People disaffiliating from the major parties saying, I'm independent, you know, or vote switching, maybe could be an indicator of dealignment. Or I'm not aware of anybody making the argument that electoral reform itself is an indicator of dealignment. But, you know, when you look at, for example, the New Zealand episode in 1993. The New Zealand episode in which New Zealand went from a first past the post system to a proportional system. To a list PR proportional system, the only country ever to have done that, right? And that would there was a dealignment there too. You know, New Zealand didn't suddenly say, "Hey, let's change, let's switch to MMP, mixed member proportional." The two party system there had been falling apart for twenty years, so that those background conditions of instability in the party system are common between the periods. I think this sort of rage against the machine, let's get parties out of politics messaging strategy is another commonality between the periods. I saw just the other day, I saw a tweet from one of the state RCV groups saying, do you want to form a proportional representation that works without parties? Right. Like, you know, hello, call Clarence Hogue in 1914 and see what he thinks of that message. One big difference is that the instant runoff or single winner rank choice isn't sort of happening on its own track. And then the PR people are coming in and saying, wow, thanks for doing all that work in popularizing the ranked ballot. That's how that sort of fusion of reforms happened in 1913, 1914. Instead, what we've seen this time around is the PR people say, well, we need to popularize the ranked ballot. So let's pass a bunch of instant runoff and single winner ranked choice, or heck, let's even pass block preferential in Utah, which is a sort of multi-seat majoritarian form of ranked choice voting. Uh, and that's that's a little frightening because this single winner reform that I mentioned that was happening during the progressive era, it wasn't really single winner. It was also multi-seat majoritarian. Right. So this is a kind of hyper-majoritarian. Right? Yeah. The lar- the city's right. largest faction gets every seat in city council. Yeah. So we So it's like anti-proportional. It's it's wildly anti-proportional. I would I would argue it's anti-democratic. <laughs> well, OK, so let's let's get into what else is happening now. So in the progressive era, there was a move to move towards primary elections, get rid of the caucuses, the, the party caucuses that had allowed the parties to control the candidates because the idea was we got to wrest control away from the parties. Now there's this move to do this open primaries. There's been you know, top two in California and Washington. Now there's this top four in Alaska with uh, RCV ranked trust voting grafted onto that. There's a, something under consideration in Nevada. What do you make of this approach to just kind of append this to open primaries and also in the context of this like deeply divided, hyper-polarized politics with voting rights being an issue? Like, how do you see all this this stuff? Is it a is it a is it a combination that makes sense to you? Is it is it something that seems like a like people making the same mistake all over again? 
Yeah, the, the messaging around that stuff, the final five voting topics, RCV, what's being called open primaries, but is not actually a primary in any meaningful sense of the term primary, like all of the way that that stuff is talked about in public, it was talked about in the same way, uh, you know, 110 years ago. And the cause itself of direct primaries is inextricably, inextricably linked in some states with the cause of, quote unquote, preferential voting. It doesn't work. We've got 11 states that are using RCV within primaries. Then by the middle of the Roosevelt presidency, none of them are using it. any. Franklin Delano Roosevelt presidency, none of them are doing it anymore. We don't see that open primaries, final five voting type stuff being used at the state level, but there are a lot of people who want it. The arguments that are being made in local government for majoritarian RCV are similar to the arguments that are being made uh, in favor of open primaries RCV today. You know, it's the party machine is in the way. There's too much control of nominations. There's a public interest out there, and we just need to get you know these intermediary special interests and party leaders out of the way so that we can use an algorithm to suck that public interest out of the population, and everybody will. Uh, dance around with the general you, you, will on Rousseau Mountain. That you you sound skeptical. You, you sound like a pluralist who thinks that there's more diversity in the electorate and that the public will is is a is a fiction of of reformers' imagination. So one reason to prefer open list PR is just it, it gives parties more control of their uh, nominations, uh, assuming we get rid of the primary election, which I think we should do as part of a, uh, if we did a, an electoral reform bill. But, you know, I, I think there, I think there's another element of that, that, that you've thought about, which is the sustainability of these reforms. So I wonder if you could explicate your, your thinking there a little bit. And also while, while we're doing this, like what size districts do you think would be ideal? Five members, seven members, something in that space? Yeah, I, I'm going to defer five, five to seven seem fine. I'm a fan of the Kerry and Hicks paper. And for, for those who, who haven't read it, it's the small magnitude PR paper, right? You know, like you can get most effective proportionality through about five member districts. Yeah. That and most P, most PR away. works that way. It's not this yeah. massive nationwide district that lets in the Ukrainian beer drinkers party. <laughs> right. That That's the when people think about proportional representation, they're like, oh, we, we don't want to be Israel. So, you know, but Israel has the nationwide system. OK, so let's talk about the benefits of, of OLPR and then let's talk about what how, how we're going to get there, because you have some strategies on on how reform happens. So let's say that your STV adoptions, wherever they may be, and I talk about one potential one we might see in, in, at the level of a state, uh, let's say that these do not bring forth a multi-party system. I think I worry about the stability of STV in a two-party system. And the reason is a technical term called vote or transfer leakage. In other words, it's nice to have multi-party politics because there's a there's a flavor for everyone. But when you have a two-party system, there isn't a flavor for everyone. And the factional politics comes back. And what vote leakage or transfer leakage refers to, as I measure it in the book, is ballots that list uh, one party A's candidate as its first choice, ultimately contributing to the election of party B. 
All right. The transfers don't just go from one party to another, but they cross the entire party system. Right. So so this idea and some some advocates of, of STV say, well, we want to you know maintain the two party system. We just want to have factions within the two party system. And then we'll have this proportional system that will encourage more factions. And what you're saying is that's not really sustainable. Well, that's what gets it repealed. That's what I argue yeah. gets it repealed. Okay, so openless PR or 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 a strong party version of STV like like Australia is more sustainable because it incur it actually allows the new parties to form and then they have a stake in the existing system and you can't get rid of it without their support. Well, I think having new parties form that have a stake in nonpartisan STV can save STV and it did save STV in a couple of the American cases. The bigger worry is that no, you actually don't get multi-party politics out of these reforms. So what happens in the cities, most of these cities end up developing two-party systems under STV. The reformers with the reform coalition, which usually includes some aggrieved minority party in a city, right? They, they form a party of their own. And then the rump of the old quote unquote machine is on the other side of the political system. So you end up with two-party politics in all these cities in a way. And STV doesn't do well when you blow a realignment through a political system like that. That's the conclusion I've come right. to. But if you did it at a national level, it might be it might be different because you're not dealing with these small councils. Yeah. And I, I like to imagine what this would look like at the national level, which raises massive questions about how it gets adopted at the national level. But one way to think about my argument is that, um, you know, mansion and cinema, if, if an electoral system could be blamed for their behavior, and if that electoral system were easy enough to change, given the way that the, our constitution works and the way that Congress works, that electoral system would be repealed. Okay, so let's get a little bit more specific and let's tie it in because you you kind of have these these three ways in which you think reform happens: coalition, insulating coalition, realignment, and polarizing. So talk us through those briefly and then tell us which of those strategies would be most likely to lead to reform in the next six to eight years in the U.S. Sure. So an insulating reform is your sort of classic PR adoption in Western Europe. It's an incumbent coalition. It's sitting there. It's looking out at the party system and there's some, some new threat, some some realignment or whatever that's that's got those people scared and they they adopt some kind of reform. So this is how most of most of the Western European ado- adoptions happen, right? Yeah, Bel- Belgium's the classic case. Carlos Bosch, 1999. There's a newer paper on it. The socialists are, you know, the right parties are scared, so they adopt PR, uh, and it turned okay. out to be the Catholics. So there, that's that's your insulating reform. And I, I had hoped, some of us had hoped that Congress under democratic control would might be interested in something like that, uh, PR adoption of that type. So that's your, your insulating reform. And I'm not too optimistic that we're going to see those. I think people would be wise to reconsider that path. Members of Congress probably should be less afraid of third party politics than they currently are. Uh, for reasons we can get into, but that would, so an insulating reform would be nice to see in the United States. 
Realigning reforms, and I should say, I the Alaska Final Five adoption, I view as an insulating reform, even though it was via referendum, even though it was via ballot initiative. You look at the state's political system, and the state's political system is already organized in the way that Final Five advocates promise uh, you will get out of Final Five voting, right? So that's an insulating reform up there. You go to Nevada, they're trying to create the Murkowski coalition in Nevada. I would call that a realigning reform. And just to sort of be precise about these definitions, the question is, does the reform episode initiate with the folks who control government, with the coalition that controls government? So those are the two big types, insulating, realigning. So realigning is outsiders trying to force their way in and kind of rolling the, the a governing minority. It's funny that you use the word roll because uh, the first journal article I published on any of this stuff back in 2016 used that term. It's a roll. It's analogous to the roll in, in congressional voting. So you've got some disaffected group of outsiders peel off some portion of the ruling coalition and they impose a new electoral system. All right. And then the third is polarizing. Third's a polarizer. And I sort of invented that category to explain the repeals. And then I said, well, are, do we have more examples of polarizing reforms? I think I've found one in uh, mid-century France. Uh, I would argue that the 1967 single seat district mandate for U.S. House elections itself was a polarizing reform. Right. But polarizing reforms make things more majoritarian, right? I mean, they're, they're anti-proportional. Is that, is that your theory? That's or? a good question. They have been. Right. I mean, so like what Orban did when he increased the share of single seat districts in the parliament in, in Hungary to try to make politics more polarized so he could demonize the opposition more easily. That, that, that would be a polarizing reform. But was the French example was to move to a more proportional system or when they moved away from the proportional system. To move away from PR. So what, what defines right. a polarizing episode is when opposing sides of the aisle, not opposing parties, just opposing sides of the aisle, be they parties or whatever, collude. You probably find a few of those in Italian political history too, that in which they've made things more majoritarian. But all right, let's, let's bring this to a close. So I don't think I need to convince you that the, that the two party system and hyperpartisan nature of our politics right now is problematic and that we'd be better off with a proportional multi-party system. But what would be the, like, like of the insulating versus realigning strategies, what do you see as, as more likely in the next say six to eight years? And a bunch of realigning episodes in state and local government. I think, you know, I look at a Cleveland or a Cincinnati or a New York city, people say, well, what can you learn about cities? I mean, that's a, I think cities were front and center in people's minds in the way that full states are nowadays. So we could see a bunch of sort of realigning reform activity in states, especially if you're of the mind that our politics currently suppresses economic conflict and elevates identity conflict to borrow a dichotomy. Are you of that mind? I'm there and I believe that breaking the two party doom loop is there. Yes. Uh, you know, and where does the economic conflict find expression through the electoral reform? Right. And there is brewing economic conflict. I mean, there's, there's deep levels of any inequality. And I think a lot of it is increasingly generational, too. Which is 
interesting dimension. And we had uh, Kevin Munger on recently to, to talk about the generational angle here. I think that was a big part of it during the progressive era too. And Hofstadter touches on this a little bit. Like these kids are sort of mom, dad, I don't give a damn about your old, your old civil war, bloody shirt party system. I want to go do my own thing. I'm going to go West young man and adopt the commission form of government in, in Santa Fe. <laughs> and I think that was. Yeah. So, right. There is as, as the millennials come into to, to politics and the boomers kind of reluctantly give up power. No, I think that's a big, that's going to be a big element of things. So. Like, I think a final question here is having looked at this history, like, what are the biggest mistakes for those who want to realign our politics in a way that's, I think, sustainable for for the future of American democracy and doesn't collapse into this hyper-partisan authoritarianism, which I think is something that's motivating a lot of reformers? Like, what is the biggest lesson? What is the biggest take away from the history what is the biggest mistake not to repeat uh i think there are two uh one is don't pretend that parties don't exist just because nonpartisan right. the elections are nonpartisan they're there yeah, uh, you know, and when you excise parties from your thinking you start to think that it's okay to adopt stuff like the block preferential system so got to take parties into account. Yeah. The other is that the doom loop could end with another regime of restricted suffrage. In other words, we may lower the stakes of politics by throwing people out of the electorate. And I worry that, you know, oh, 5% of voters don't understand how to rank choices. Well, we're focused on bigger, nastier systemic threats. So it, what you mean is like a, an emphasis on moderation and compromise above representation, to be specific. If you want to call it that, yeah. All right. What, what would you call it? I think running around and passing reforms is great, but you got to be asking, what does this mean for voting rights, even if it's a small percentage of the population that's going to be negatively affected. Like that's got to move up to the top of the priority schedule here, unless we so, just want to have moderation with another regime of res restricted voting. I think I you know, totally agree with you that we, we can't just try to do away with parties, can't just pretend that we're going to elevate independent voters because they're not a clear faction. And, and, you know, take representation and voting rights seriously as, as part of reform. So there we are. Got to think hard about this. And, you know, history is a guide. I think. So thank you for doing all the hard work of going through all these deep histories. And hopefully we can learn from this and not make the same mistakes again. All right. This has been another episode of Politics in Question. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute, and our producers are Shannon Lynch and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. 